made it out of verse 1. Not too far, but that's all right. We're going to be in verse 2 today. Here's where we were in verse 1. In verse 1, we saw two things. We saw the man, the Apostle Paul, in his self-description. He said that he is a servant, a bondservant, a slave, if you will, to his master who is God showing his attitude toward his master. But he also said that he is an apostle, and that communicated his willingness to go and be the mouthpiece for God. So we looked at the man, the apostle Paul, and we also looked at the mission. You remember it says, if you look at verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here is his mission. Here is what Paul is for, what his life is spent upon. For the faith of those chosen of God, that's evangelism, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, that is discipleship of those he has previously evangelized, so that he doesn't leave them hanging. He gets them saved, he helps them with their faith, he brings them to Christ, and then he trains them up in that faith, in that full knowledge, he says, until they have achieved full truth. So from beginning to end, Paul's life is spent being a servant to God. That's who he is. And his mission is to call out those who God is calling upon in grace. Bring them to faith and raise them up in that same faith. Well, that's the man and his mission. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about his motive. His motive. Paul has told us who he is and what he does. Let me tell you why motive is so important. In the life of a believer. Uh, You guys know about motive. It's been said that in job interviews, one of the top three questions to be asked by those interviewing for jobs is, what is your motivation for this job? Why do you want this job? What is your motive behind getting this job? You also know that one of the highest attributes that is found in an athlete is his motivation. If you watched Tiger Woods yesterday make it into the finals against Stuart Sink in the... uh, In the tournament, you could see in his eyes, on every putt, pure motivation. You also know that being highly motivated is a primary goal for training up soldiers. It's a theme of the Marine Corps to bring highly motivated men onto the battlefield. Why is your motivation so important? It's important, very simply, because it often says as much about you as your very actions do. Amen? Your motives often say as much or maybe more about you as your very actions. You guys know that motives are important. You watch all the great crime dramas. You watch Law and Order, Special Crime Scene, Victims Unit, New York, Miami, etc. Perry Mason, great crime dramas. Monk, not really a great crime drama, but you watch these and you know the thing that they're always looking for is who has the motive, right? What has prompted this person or this person to do this thing or that thing? It's what they're always looking for. In verse 2, we find out what Paul's motive is. We find out what the prime mover in the life of Paul is. What prompts him? What causes him to be the man he is and to be on the mission he's on? What moves him? Remember, this is one long run-on sentence. If you look from verse 1 all the way down to verse 4, you don't get a period until the last, I think you'll be surprised to see that Paul's motive is divine in origin. And you're going to see that here. 
Let's take it one phrase at a time. Because this is one long run-on sentence, it's easiest if we just take it one phrase at a time. I'm going to start back in verse 1 so you hear it all together. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life. Life. Now, hope in the Bible, I've told you this before, hope biblically is not hope the way we think about hope. Our hope is what we think of as something that may be possible, but it is at best uncertain. It's possible, but it is uncertain. That's our hope. It's a wishful thinking, crossed fingers, I, heard, I sure hope so, best guess sort of hope. That's not the biblical Notion of hope. That's not the New Testament notion of hope. That's not what Paul's trying to connotate here when he says, in the hope of eternal life. He says, my motivation here is not in a wishful thinking that one day I'm going to inherit eternal life, that those who I bring to faith will get eternal life. It's not a hope that this isn't all there is. What Paul is saying here, and what the Greek word connotates is, that Paul believes. Listen now. Paul believed, I apologize, it's a hope that is not a doubting hope, okay? Follow me now. It's a hope that is a confident hope. So when Paul says, I hope for eternal life, it means that I am confident in the fact that eternal life is true and that I will receive it. And those who I bring to faith and I raise up in truth, they will also have eternal life. It's part of his motivation. That those men and women who he brings to faith and who he raises up in that truth, they will go on from here. Now, that is a motive. Okay? Let me show you another verse here. Go to Acts 26. Turn left in your Bible. Acts 26. I want to show you another place that this word hope is used. I'm sorry, Acts 2, verse 26. Acts 2. You're going to see this word hope used. And this is going to give us another idea that this idea of hope biblically is not a doubting hope. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not a I hope so. It's not a best guess scenario. It's a confident assurance that it will come to pass. Acts chapter 2, let me tell you what's going on here. Peter, who has, you remember, denied Christ, seen the resurrected Christ, and now he is at the top of his spiritual game. He is preaching the word, and he's preaching the word in the face of adamant danger. He's preaching to the Jews who crucified Jesus in Acts 2. And what he's trying to do here is he's trying to prove that the fact that Jesus is who he says he was and did what he said he did is a, is a confidence that we have. It is something that be, could be counted on and depended upon. All right? Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders. You see, he's building an argument here. And signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, this Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We're going to see more about that in Titus in just a moment. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And now he quotes David in Psalm 16. Check this out. David says this about Jesus to come. 
I saw the Lord always in my presence. And this is a little confusing here unless you understand what's going on. David is quoting this, but he's quoting Jesus. So this is Jesus when he says, I, I is the Christ. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. You hear the confidence? You hear the guarantee in this? The security? There is no doubt. There is no doubt in Jesus' mind that God will leave him in the grave after the cross. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. It's the same word as Titus. Confidence. Jesus says, I will live in hope, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That wasn't said of David. It was said by David about Jesus. So you hear the way that hope is used in a confident, guarantee type way? Flip over to Titus. I could show you other passages where this word hope is used as a security or a guarantee. It's said of the Holy Spirit that He has given to us as a pledge or a guarantee that we will inherit the eternal life that we've been promised. So it's not our kind of hope. Hope here refers to security or guarantee expresses Paul's confidence, not his doubt. Now back in Titus, if you're a thinking person, here's the question you should be asking yourself. Where is it that Paul comes up with such confidence in something that is still yet to come? Where is it that Paul comes up with this confidence in something that is still yet to come? Namely, eternal life. That Paul could make this confident statement that my hope is in eternal life. He's going to tell us here in the next phrase. Look back in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, or the next two words, which God, which God, and we might stop right there. For believers, that is enough, amen? For believers, that is enough to say that God is in the midst of it. But he goes on from there. He doesn't just say, which God? He goes on and he qualifies this God of his. He says, this God who cannot lie. Interesting phrase to add on here. My God who cannot lie. A couple reasons why he says this. This God, a non-lying God. It's more than the fact that God does not lie. He's saying that this God cannot lie. He is a non-lying God in the sense that it is part of his very character. That truth dwells in him by his very nature. It is by his own nature that he tells the truth. In other words, God doesn't have it in him to tell a lie. He is in his very essence truth. So where does Paul get his confidence for this eternal life? For Paul, he finds it in God. He finds it in God. Let me give you another passage here. Turn to John 6. Go back to your left. John 6. Let me give you some words from Jesus to help us bolster our case for we can find confidence in this eternal future that we have been promised. John 6, verse 37. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Any doubt in that? 
none at all. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last hope in eternal life. For Paul, he finds it in God. And he gives us a statement, this qualification that says, and by the way, this is a God who can't lie. It's not in his nature to lie. Let me give you another reason why Paul says this, that he cannot lie. Flip back over to Titus. If you look in Titus 1, down in verse 12, Paul's writing this letter to Titus who is in Crete. Crete is known to house liars. Listen to what verse 12 says. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's a quote. Paul quotes a guy named Epimenides. It's a well-known poet, Cretan poet, one of their own prophets. So one of their own has already said, these guys are always liars. It was uh, used in a derogatory way in Paul's day. If you were called a Cretan, it was like saying to someone, you were a liar. You couldn't be trusted. And so in this greeting, Paul comes back and he says, I have this hope, I have this confidence in eternal life. It's based on my God. And by the way, my God is not one who can lie. We're going to talk about lying later on here. But my God can be trusted. He is faithful to his word. He cannot lie. When he tells us something, it is true. It is true. Keep going here. Again, if you're a thinking person, you might now say, well, that's nice, Paul. You still have no, offered no real activity, no real proof, just a statement about your faith in eternity to come and a statement about your trustworthiness, uh, the trustworthiness you have in your God. Paul is going to back it up even more here. Look at what he said. Ago. This God who cannot lie said that I would have eternal life, and as a matter of fact, he promised it long ages ago. He is a truthful God. He can be trusted. Furthermore, he's made a promise. When you give a promise, it's as if you say, you can trust my word, and I will not back out on what I said. And so Paul puts out here, he says, God has given us such a promise, a promise of eternal life. And he's done it at a particular time. Do you see when Paul says that this promise came about? Your passage says, most likely, promised long ages ago. Literally, it's before time began. It's the word in the Greek, chronos. We get the word chronology. Chronology is a succession in time. So Paul says, before this thing, this succession of time ever began, before time as you and I know it ever got going, God gave us a promise. Now when someone gives you a promise, if they fall on it, if they, if they falter on it, you can call them on it, right? I mean, you can find out if someone is truly a liar if they give you a promise and they don't back it up. For someone just to make a declaration that I tell the truth all the time, it's kind of hard, it's kind of hard to doubt them until they make a promise and they falter on it. Paul says, I'll give you an Second Timothy 1. He's going to say much the same thing. Starting in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, 
who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? All eternity. Meaning all eternity past. Again, before chronology started, before the succession of time as humans know it began, we were saved in Christ. Meaning that God had this plan long before you and I ever came on the scene. Now, can his promise that came that long ago be trusted? Look at the next phrase. But at the proper time, go back to Titus. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now hang with me here because we're about to tie this all up. Promised long ages ago, meaning before time began, he gave us this promise. Now let's see if God can fulfill it. Paul says he can. Verse 3, at the proper time, meaning in the appointed season, he manifested his very word. His word was his promise. Paul, can God be trusted? Yeah, he is in character before the foundations of this world. And it came about. There is proof. It was authenticated. He backed it up indeed. Now let me show you what this is. Let's put all this together. And remember our original question. Where is it that Paul finds such confidence in that which is still yet to come? Meaning our future eternal state. Where does he find this confidence? In eternal life. If you look at what Paul says here, he says, I find this confidence... And what is to come? My hope, my certainty is that this life is not all there is. There will be more. Humans will live on into eternity. And he says, I'm confident about that because when I look back in eternity, before time, chronos, began, God made a promise. Do you see what he's doing here? He's looking forward into eternity. And he's claiming a promise that in eternity past, God gave his word upon. And then he comes back and right in the middle he says, and God made good on his promise at the very right time. It's not the same word for time as chronos. That's at the beginning of time. Now he uses the word kairos. It's a different Greek word. And here's why that's important. It means at a specific point in time according to God's specific plan. He made good on the promise of eternity past in Christ, so we are now confident in eternity future. Amen? Flip over to Ephesians. I want to give you one more passage here. Just to your left a little bit. Galatians, Ephesians, verse chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. He says much the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. That's eternity past. 
that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. When was that? Eternity past. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Again, referring to his wisdom and insight in eternity past. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Again, eternity past. With a view to an administered times, meaning when God said was the right time for it to happen. At God's appointed perfect timing. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained a what? An inheritance. What's that a reference to? Eternity future. Having been predestined, eternity past. According to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ. There's that word hope again. We who were the first to have this guarantee of Christ, this promise of eternity past found in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance eternity future, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Amen? Yeah, that's good. Let's apply this a little bit, shall we? Paul's motive, just to summarize. Paul's motive, you've seen the man, this servant, this humble servant. You've seen his mission, evangelism, discipleship. What has motivated him? Certainly, we could narrow it. He chose to say that this whole spectrum of eternity is what provides his confidence, his hope, and his motivation for being the man he is and doing the mission that he does. That from eternity future to eternity past, he finds God slap in the middle to be depended upon, to be trusted in, to say, I find my guarantee, I find my faithfulness in this God in that he's, His Word can be trusted because from eternity to eternity He has been truthful with me and He can be counted upon. What is Paul's motivation? I think it's this eternal perspective that he has gained through Christ. An eternal perspective of eternal future and eternal past. You know what Paul has? Paul has what many of us, okay, and here's the application. Paul has what many of us struggle to have. It's the big picture. It's the big picture. You know, I I played football, and um, here's one thing that I know about playing football and watching football. When you're on the field, it's much more difficult to see what's happening as it's happening It's much more difficult to see things on the field than it is to sit in the stands 
and see things happen. Or to sit at home and watch on TV and see things unfold from above. You follow me here? When you're on the field and you're in the midst of it and you're in the heat. But when you get in the press box, when you step back above from the Goodyear blimp, things make more sense. Amen? Things are clearer. They're more defined. Paul has this vantage point. He's developed it in his heart. Christ has birthed it in his mind. And we must strive for it. What is it? It's this eternal perspective. It's this big picture that motivates him. It's the difference between seeing your neighborhood from a plane or seeing it in your car. Everything just seems to line up in a plane, doesn't it? All the, all the roads are straight. All the angles are 90 degrees. Everything makes sense. It's all clear and simple. In a car, it's not that way. Here's what we strive for. We strive. If we want to be like the man, Paul, and if we want to be about his mission, evangelism, discipleship, being about the business of God, here's what we have to gather. We have to, in ourselves, begin to build upon this idea of lifting our eyes from the temporal, from the temporary, from the things of this world, and stepping back and taking the time to ask, what is the big picture here in my life? Paul says, you know what? By the grace of God, I've, I've seen the big picture. I know that this isn't it. And here's what he knows. He knows that eternity stretches into the future. And he's confident in it. That men and women will die in the flesh, but they will live on in the Spirit and they will be judged. And so he's going to be about bringing them to faith and raising them up in the full knowledge of truth. Because he knows what the future holds. He sees this big picture. He's confident in it because he knows that the promise that God has given way back before time began came to be in Christ. And he can be trusted. He can be trusted. In what ways will eternal perspective motivate us? Let me give you three or four here. You may want to write these down. Gaining an eternal perspective can help us in a few different ways. This isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some crucial areas. Number one, if we, like Paul, gain this eternal perspective on our life, that we don't have this myopic perspective, this tunnel vision of life, that we see the big picture of what God is doing from eternity past to eternity future, that God is about an eternal plan that includes the salvation of men and women, that includes calling us to be a part of that, if we gain that eternal perspective, here's what it does in our life. Number one, it prompts us to purity. It prompts us to purity. Just knowing, five, for that which we have done in the flesh, whether good or light, meaning there's not much of it, and that the fire of God will come down upon the mound of deeds that we have done as believers now, that the fire of God will consume Everything that is not done for Him, for His glory, for His kingdom, that is done out of selfish motives, 
that the fire of God will consume all that. And what is left, we will be rewarded for. We will get an inheritance for. We will receive crowns for. So that we can do what? We can turn around with those crowns based on the deeds in our life as believers being faithful to the call with an eternal perspective. We take that inheritance and we turn around and we lay those crowns at the feet of the one who stepped in to eternity on our behalf and, listen to this now, and made good on the word of the Father. And we take those crowns and we'll lay them at His feet. Do you know, do you know that? Do you have that eternal perspective? With that kind of eternal perspective, it'll prompt us to a life of purity. That our life won't be clouded with everything that distracts from God, but that promotes His kingdom. So that our lives would not disqualify us from being involved in His work. Amen? An eternal perspective prompts us to purity. It also stimulates us to service. It'll stimulate us to... You will never become the man, and you will never be on the mission that Paul was on. Because you don't have the motive of an eternal perspective that Paul carried in his heart. That was a burden on his life. That fueled him, that prompted him to a life of service. Prompts us to purity, stimulates us to service. It encourages us to endure. I could take you to a bunch of passages, I don't have time. Knowing and being secure that this life is not all there is. Understanding the eternal plan of our God and our Savior encourages us to endure in the meantime. Because this isn't all. There will be an inheritance. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day that God will declare justice upon evil. There will be a day that He steps in again and He makes everything right. That He wipes away every tear. But until that day, until that day, we can endure because we know that day will come in His good timing. Can I give you one more? This is a bonus here. Having an eternal perspective, it directs our doctrine. Directs our doctrine. Say, so what do you mean by that? Understanding the correct plan of God, that He is, uh, see a, he is about an eternal about the eternal business of calling out humanity for his own glory. Understanding that eternal perspective, well, how should I say it? It helps eliminate bad doctrine. If something does not fall within the framework of God's eternal plan, if it too narrowly focuses on things outside of God's eternal plan, then they should be question marks in our doctrine at best. That should be a red flag that they don't line up with true biblical doctrine. Let me give you an example. If something is more about you than about God, if something is more about the temporal than it is the eternal plan of God, then it most likely will not fit into biblical theology and doctrine. A true and correct eternal perspective on this life from eternity to eternity that God is about a plan here helps us to put everything else in its correct place. 
yeah, this fits, this doesn't fit, this fits, that doesn't fit. And it also helps put everything else in correct perspective. That some things fall short or fall secondary or fall last place to God's ultimate and eternal plans. It directs our doctrine. Let me close this here. If, um, if you have a desire, and this is our motivation here. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over the next couple verses in the next couple weeks because we're going to come back to them in the body of the text. But I'm going to skip over the next two sections of Paul's greeting, verse, uh, rest of three and four. Let me tell you what he gives us. After he gives us this motivation, he gives us what his marching orders were. That God has called him to take this word and to proclaim it. In fact, he says that God has commanded him to do so. That's his marching orders for life. And then in verse 4, he's going to tell us that this letter is to Titus. We're going to get the idea that he is not only a servant, but he is a mentor. So in this greetings, we've gone from the man, the mission, his motive. We've seen his marching orders that God has now told him, you take this word that you are confident in and you proclaim it. And in verse 4, he says, you know, I've got this guy, Titus, and I've sent him to Crete, and you need to listen to him, Cretans. You see, Paul's a mentor. We're going to unfold those next couple scenarios in the rest of the text. If it is in your heart to be like the Apostle Paul, who has it in his heart to be like Christ, ask yourself today's challenge. Do you have an eternal perspective or do you have a temporal, narrow, myopic perspective on this life? Is this life about the now, the here, my career, my kids, my job right now, my five-year plan, my ten-year plan? The house I have now, the house I want to have, the car I have now, the car I want to have. And your life won't line up with the life of the Apostle Paul. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find the Apostle Paul elevating his own desires. Nowhere. It is always, always about what God is doing and how he can be a part of what God is doing from eternity past to eternity future. Let's pray.